Amen. I am just chomping at the bit to preach this passage. I've always wanted to and finally have my chance. So, good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Now, I mentioned this um, at our Christmas service uh, last year now, um, and that is that Christianity is strange. It's just downright strange. Now, when I first became a believer, and I'm sure you can all uh, sympathize with me here, um, I used to think I had it down. I used to think that I knew all there was to know. I used to sort of have it all under my thumb, and it all sort of made perfect, reasonable sense. But the longer I've been a Christian, the more I study the Word of God, the deeper I peer into the gospel, the more confounding it becomes. Truly, the weirder, the stranger, the more astonishing the Christian faith is. Not that it's irrational. It's not what I mean. The Christian faith makes a great deal of sense, much more sense than any other sort of worldview that's on offer does. Rather, what I mean just is that what I find and what we all encounter in the gospel is unexpected. It's surprising. And it often leaves me speechless. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So this morning, we're finishing out our series on uh, wisdom. We've been in Proverbs, and if we had more time, I would have loved to take you into Job to sort of balance out the picture of wisdom, and then into Ecclesiastes to sort of provide a a good foundation to build from. But we don't have that time, so we're in our passage. Now, in Proverbs, wisdom, as we've seen, is about what's expected. Wisdom is about what's reliable. Remember, God created the world with an order to it. It's not random. It's not chaotic. It's reliable. And because it's reliable, there are certain ways of living that just work as opposed to other ways. There are paths that are better and wise as compared to other ones. And so what a wise person does is they are able to discern the patterns that God has placed into the world and live with those, sort of to go with the stream rather than against it. But another element in Proverbs that also comes up is just a recognition that God is God and that He is able to do what's unexpected, that He's able to break up those reliable patterns and to do something new. And the moment that wisdom, we think it becomes our possession, where we can sort of rest on our laurels, as it were, that's the moment that God breaks things up. And God confounds our wisdom, and He does something new. And that is what the cross of Jesus Christ is. Paul says that God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? God has silenced all of them in the cross. So rather than closing 
with more about wisdom this morning. What I'd like to do is tie things up with a word about foolishness. Sometimes it just is better to be foolish than to be wise. It's better to be out of your mind for the cause of Christ than it is to be wise and respected according to worldly standards. And if we truly desire to obtain what is genuine wisdom, not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom of the age to come, then we must first become fools. That's what Paul says, as we'll see in a moment. We first must become fools. So what I want to do this morning is commend foolishness to you under three headings. What we want to talk about first is the foolishness of the cross. Second, the foolishness of salvation. And third, the foolishness of Christian life. So, let's begin with the first of those, which is the foolishness of the cross. Now, we're jumping into a new passage here, so I just feel like I need to give you a little bit of background to help make sense of what's going on. Now, Paul's immediate concern here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, extending all the way to chapter 4, is division. And you can see that specifically in verses 10 through 17 of chapter 1. There, what happened in the church was they were separating these brothers and sisters um, from one another in the name of their preferred leader. So you would have some in the church saying, we follow Paul. Others saying, we follow Peter, whom Paul terms Cephas. Or others saying, we follow Apollos. And of course, this is a massive failure for the church. Paul asks the Corinthians uh, a series of rhetorical questions. He says, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Were, 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 was Paul crucified for you? So here are these brothers and sisters um, splitting into tribes in the name of their preferred leader. And Paul's saying, you have missed the supremacy of Christ. But Paul also understands that there's something else going on here. There's something more at work behind these divisions. And Essentially what it is, is a worldly pride that the Corinthians boast in. Now if you read on through 1 Corinthians, on into even 2 Corinthians, you can get a good idea of what this church was like, and specifically the more pro problematic individuals within the church. And essentially they were, they were just kind of snobs, if you could put it that way. They put a great value the Corinthians did on the high things of life. And what this did for them was it allowed them to distinguish themselves from others because of their leader, right? The one that they followed. It was a way for them of demonstrating their superiority over others. Now we know this because Paul makes it clear. We already read verse 29. Paul says, let no man or that no man may boast before God. And then at the conclusion of his argument in chapter 3, verse 21, he says, let no one boast in men. The problem is this boasting. The Corinthians one-upping one another in the name of their preferred 
leader. So you could imagine the Corinthians, some of them saying, you know, Paul, he's rather unimpressive in person. He, he sort of has a contemptible presence. We really like Apollos. Look at his sophisticated and polished speech, uh, the, the eloquence of, of, his, uh, of his leadership, whatever. Or some we saying, no, no, not Apollos, not Peter, but, but, but Paul. Look at the depth of his insight. Look at his command over the scriptures. Or others saying, no, neither of them but Peter. His commanding personal presence, someone we can follow, or whatever it is, right? If not in those words exactly, that's the general idea that we get from the Corinthians. Now, Paul has some serious problems with this. Not simply because it's childish, but more so because it betrays a, a real misunderstanding of the gospel. That's the issue here. The Corinthians have heard this message preached to them. They've received it, but they don't quite understand it. They failed to get the real heart of the message that Paul was preaching. Otherwise, they just wouldn't be boasting like this. They wouldn't be tearing the body of Christ apart into different camps. Now the question is, well, what does any of this have to do with wisdom? What does any of this have to do with wisdom? Well, the Corinthians, they had a preoccupation with wisdom. This was one of those areas in which they boasted in. Corinth um, is in Greece, um, was in Greece, is in modern-day Greece. And if you know, Greece is the home of the ancient philosophers. Uh, these are men like uh, Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and Pythagoras and Epicurus and all these strange names um, that sound like Ninja Turtles or something. But uh, they, they sort of laid a foundation for this kind of thing. And besides these, you know, great figures of philosophy whom in many ways still influence us today, there were what you'd have was sort of like pop philosophers in Corinth. Um, Paul mentions them in verse 29, uh, the wise man, the scribe, and the debater. And essentially what these figures would have been were something of local celebrities. Um, athletes were really highly valued, and politicians were really highly valued, and these sort of pop philosophers were highly valued. And you could imagine them standing at the street corner as everyone's out at the market or whatever, sort of wowing the crowds with their rhetorical abilities and the way they could sort of distill these schools of philosophy. Um, and, and this was sort of just the culture of the day. Now, the Corinthians... They wanted something similar from Paul. They wanted something similar from him and his message. They wanted that flowery speech of these pop philosophers. They wanted um, a, a distillation of, of philosophical learning. And instead, as, as Paul says in our passage, what he preaches is the word of the cross. And this word of the cross was foolishness to the Corinthians in comparison to 
these pop philosophers. Paul was not preaching a message of Platonic metaphysics or Aristotelian causes and so on and so forth. He was preaching a message of a crucified Messiah. And those two things couldn't be further apart. On the one hand, nothing more respected than the philosophical learning of the day. And nothing more contemptible and despised than crucifixion. And what Paul does is he separates the human race into two groups. And he details how they respond to this message of the cross. To one group, it's foolishness. To the other group, it's a stumbling block. Those who see the cross as foolishness, the word that Paul uses is moria. It's where our word moron comes from. So it's not hard to imagine how they received this message. Its preachers and its content were moronic. To the others, a stumbling block, the word is scandalon. And it's where our word, scandal, comes from. This preaching of the cross was an outrage to them. It was a stumbling block. It was something that infuriated them. And I want you to understand this on an emotional level. Because these reactions aren't the sort of wise and considered reactions of learned people. These are simply gut instinct, emotional response to the message of the cross. It's foolishness. This is ridiculous. And the other was thinking, this is an outrage. Now, for the most part, if you are a devoted Christian or the most hardened atheist, it's almost impossible for us to have these reactions to the cross today. We live on the far side of 2,000 years of Christian history. For us, the cross is an item of jewelry. It's a tattoo on our skin. It's a decoration in our home. It's a symbol that when we see it, speaks of love. It speaks of heroic self-sacrifice. It speaks of peace and reconciliation. But in the ancient world, that same cross communicated the exact opposite. It was not those things. It was never those things. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but it was perfected by the Romans. And essentially, crucifixion was a display of Roman power. That was the point. It was to portray as vividly and as unmistakably as possible, what happens when you get on the wrong side of Rome? So, for instance, in 71 BC, you guys probably know the name Spartacus. Um, he led a slave rebellion against the Roman Empire, right? So, a, 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 a pretty substantial group of people, slaves, rebelling against the uh, powers that be. Anyway, that revolt was stamped out, and to sort of get the message across, the Romans crucified 6,000 people, and they lined them up 
on the, the busiest road into Rome called the Appian Way. It was some 100 miles. So if you were visiting, coming in on a family vacation into Rome, you have to pass by 6,000 people on each side of the road crucified. But if we have billboards, some can be nice, some can be offensive. Romans had crucifixions lining the road. So for that reason, the cross was much more about humiliation than it was about pain. If Romans simply wanted to put people to death as quickly and effectively as possible, there were more efficient ways to do that. That's not the point of the crucifixion. Instead, it was all about shame. It was all about degradation. It was all about dehumanization. It's quite graphic, but it helps for us to understand. More often than not, a crucified person would be stripped naked. They would have nails driven through their hands and through their feet, and they were just left to hang there. Obviously, that's extremely painful, but it's not going to kill you right away. And so most people who died from crucifixion died either from suffocation. You could imagine as you're hanging there, your diaphragm is constricting, and you have to push up on your feet, which have been pierced to sort of gather in breath. And at a certain point, you just had no more strength, and so you would suffocate to death. Or you would just simply die of dehydration, being out in the wilderness with no one to help or to do anything for you. And to sort of add to the horror of it, birds would fly around and land on people and peck at them in all sorts of shameful ways, rats and mice. And again, adding to this element of shame, a person who was crucified, it would be in a public place. Our Lord Jesus was crucified, again, for all to see. And when the Gospels talk about Jesus' crucifixion, they sort of bypass the physical aspect of it. It just says he was scourged, and they crucified him. And what the Gospels linger on is this element of mockery and shame that Jesus experiences. The, the Roman soldiers, the people standing at the foot of the cross, them casting lots for his clothes, it's the shame of this moment. Now, if we can just for a moment catch a glimpse of what crucifixion meant to ancient people, the horror of it, we can understand what made this message of the Apostle Paul so polarizing to pagan sensibilities who put a high premium on wisdom. The cross was just, it was hideous. This is something perverse. And it's cast aside as foolishness to Jewish sensibilities who valued power and signs. This is just an outright abomination. It's sacrilege to say that this is God's Messiah. It's outrageous. And Paul himself is the supreme example here. This message of the cross was so offensive to him, so deeply hateful to him that he devoted his life to tearing apart the Christian church, getting letters from the authorities so that he could come and grab people out of the Christian assembly and imprison them. He hated this message. 
Then he was converted, confronted by the risen Lord. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he is not ashamed of the gospel. I think this was something that Paul wrestled with. That was so hard for him to ultimately come to terms with because it was unexpected. Who would have thought that God would come to a Roman cross? That this is how he would accomplish his purposes. The foolishness of the cross. So now we've set that, uh, hopefully sort of get a sense of what that would have felt like in the ancient world. We can then proceed now to get to the real meat of what Paul's getting at. So he says uh, in verses 19 uh, through 20, Paul, Paul gives, um, excuse me, he gives an explanation for why God would do something like this. Why he would do something that just flipped everybody's mind. So, Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? So Paul's quoting a passage from Isaiah 29 here. And in its original context, this passage was an oracle of judgment against the nation of Israel and its leaders. God said that, you know, you guys are honoring me with your mouths, you know, saying, hey, we trust you, Lord, we're, we, we're following you. But behind that, what they were doing is they were trusting in their own wise and realistic plans to protect the kingdom, essentially. So they're saying, God, we trust you, we trust you. But behind that, what they were doing was making deals with the Egyptian empire to protect them from other foreign powers. And so God says, no, 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 you're honoring me with your mouths, but your hearts are far from me. Therefore, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy your wisdom. I'm going to set aside your cleverness. In other words, he's going to turn their best counsel into idiocy. He's going to turn their most clever political advisors into fools. And what God is doing here is asserting his own sovereignty. Again, the people have come to trust in their wisdom. This is what we should do. Here's how it should look like. And God says, I'm the only one who you should trust. And he's declaring the foolishness of trusting in anything but him. And so what Paul is saying here is that God's action in ancient Israel causing the wisdom of the wise to fail and setting aside the cleverness of the clever, that it becomes a microcosm for what God has done on a universal scale in the cross. He says that is like this. The cross, the foolishness of it, invalidates the wisdom of the world. The wise man, the scribe, the debater, the pop philosopher, whoever you want to name along, the, along that list in our day, have been silenced. The cross appears to us as foolishness, but it's the wisdom of God. And what it declares is everything else as foolish. 
So we still haven't answered that question, what is God's purpose in all this? The cross destroys our wisdom, but to what end? Why has God done this? Look at verse 21 now. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, God chose the foolishness of the cross to humble us. And all our self-assured wisdom about how we think things are. He humbles us. God destroys our wisdom. And he does so not by being wiser than us. Of course God is wiser than us. He does it by being more foolish than us. God destroys our pride. Not by being more powerful than us. Of course he's more powerful than us, but by being weaker Salvation comes through the foolishness and the weakness of cross. That's what Paul says in verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The whole point here is that God has made the doorway into redemption quite small and low. And the simple fact is we are too big. Our overinflated egos and our elevated self-opinions won't let us through the door. Um, Tom had just finished uh, a room for his granddaughter, Charlie. And what she wanted in her room um, is just a little entry door. So it's not a normal door like, you know, standard height, but you, you have to duck to come in. And you walk through the door and you come in and there's this beautiful little craft and art room for her. The message of the cross is a lot like that. It's a small door. And if you're not willing to be humbled by the foolishness of the cross, if you're not willing to cast aside your weakness, you won't make it in. You're going to be bumping up against the door every which way. Salvation doesn't come through the elevated wisdom of the world. It doesn't come through the surpassing power of men. God has rejected those things. It comes through the littleness of the cross. And if we want to be with the Lord on that last day, we have to become small again. You need to become little. You need to become like a child. You need to become weak. And you need to become foolish. And this is what Paul says to the Corinthians in the preceding verses. He says, guys, you're the proof of this. It's the, talk about being humbled. He says, you're the proof of this. He says, consider your calling. He says that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those which, the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despise, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. He says, you guys are the proof of this. <laughs> he chose you because you could actually fit through the door. <laughs> In reality, we all can. We're all that small, we just think we're bigger. So the cross humbles us. That's why God has acted this way. It's a narrow, small little door that we have to squeeze through. So, 
the foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of salvation, now the foolishness of the Christian life. Now Paul's argument against the pride of the Corinthians, it carries on for some time. But eventually he brings it to its conclusion uh, by saying this in chapter 3. Uh, he says, there we are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man amongst you, among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. In other words, the so-called wisdom of this age, the things that we value, the things that we respect, the things that we hold in high esteem, are in fact not wisdom at all. And to truly become wise, Paul says, what you have to do is embrace the foolishness of the cross. And then, then this process of wisdom can begin. Read 2 Corinthians and you'll find a whole lot more about this particular idea. So the Christian life appears foolish, but in reality, Paul says, it's wisdom. The worldly life appears wise, but in reality, it's foolish. And that's the paradox of what God has done. Up is not up. Down is. If you want to have honor, it's humility. If you want to have wisdom, it's foolishness. Hence the encouragement at the beginning. We all desire wisdom. Of course we do. I don't doubt that. But to obtain it, the only path is the foolishness of the cross. And Paul's our example here. Paul, it's assumed, had, um, he had an illness or a disability that hampered him throughout most of his ministry. Um, scholars think it may have had something to do with his vision. Because in Galatians, he sort of pleads with the church after they've abandoned the gospel. He says, you know, you would have torn your eyes out for me. So we think maybe something happened with his sight. But anyway, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, he describes this ailment, whatever it might have been. It may not even have been physical. The point is, we don't know, and so it's a catch-all for anything. But what he says, or what he calls this, is a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to torment me. So whatever it is that he was facing, it was extremely severe. Paul here is a man who has suffered much, who has gone through much pain because of this. And naturally, as one would, he wants it to go away. He, he, he doesn't want to be in this situation. I think if any of us have, I mean, of course, any pain that comes into our life, we say, Lord, please, I don't want this. And so he says in chapter 12, verse 8, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So, so, so these three separate occasions where Paul is imploring, begging God, please take this from me, please, I don't want it. His perspective here, right, is pretty clear. There's nothing good in this for Paul. There's no silver lining that he can find here. It's just all bad. He wants it gone. And it's at that point where, where, where Paul is just up against the wall that he receives a surprising message. 
indeed a, a paradoxical answer. He continues now. Second Corinthians, um, yeah, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. This is the Lord's answer to him. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In a moment of revelation, Paul's entire perspective on his weakness has changed. It was something before that he utterly rejected. Now he understands in these words of Christ that God's grace and his power intersect with human lives at the point of our greatest weakness. Paul's strength was only his strength. It was only the wisdom and the power of the flesh. And the more that he had of his strength, ultimately the less he had of God's strength. The more that he could rely upon his own resources, the less he had of divine grace. And so he comes to the understanding that divine power is unleashed in our lives at the point where human power is tapped out. And so Paul has this profound shift of, of, of perspective. He used to despise this weakness, whatever it was, and now he glories in it. He boasts in it because he says, when I am weak, then I'm strong. When I'm foolish, then I'm wise. This is the foolishness of the cross just transposed into a different key, the key of Paul's own life. Beneath our outward weakness, beneath our maybe obvious foolishness, there could be concealed the depth of divine power and wisdom. And that's just how God does things. He reveals himself in his opposite. He's present in our lives where we least expect him to be. So, drawing things to a close now, this is the strange and paradoxical nature of the Christian life. The world would lead us to want to be wise and eminent and noteworthy. The Christian life says go the opposite way. It pushes us to embrace those areas of our lives that we most want to forget and that we most want other people to forget of us. In worldly terms, it's simply foolish. And so my encouragement to you is then embrace it all the more. I don't think we want to be wise on worldly terms. If that's the gambit, give me foolishness. So here's just a few ways maybe this works out in your life. Some things on ramps to think about. I think maybe one aspect would be sort of the manicured images that we create for ourselves. Uh, social media is a, an issue here, but just any social context, there's a constant pressure to posture and present ourselves a certain way. 
to maintain an image of composure, of strength, and etc., to cover up any signs of weakness or foolishness. Certainly a pressure I feel, sort of as the pastor of this church, to always put on a strong face or like I know what I'm doing, as if we all have it together. But what Paul says is the opposite. It's the weakness when it's welcomed where God's grace is. The second point, um, I would say, pertains to our image as well, but, but this time not in relation to other humans, but God. We do this as well, don't we? We put on a front before God, uh, a pious image, uh, a righteous image, a sort of we have it all together image before God, which is, you know, we can deceive humans, but certainly not God. And when we do that, we just block up the grace and power that he would prefer to pour upon us because we're too prideful, right? We haven't entered through that little small door. And so we should embrace those things because that's how Paul culminates his message to the Corinthians. He says, yeah, you guys were foolish, but Christ is the wisdom of God. He's the power of God. He's the righteousness of God for you. So let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 